Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter to you. Um, and I want to extend again the, the warmest of welcomes to all of you. This is our second service of the morning. We are very glad that you're here, and I know that you should be happy that you're here, and you should sense the privilege that we have here this morning to be together in the name of Jesus Christ, to sing His praise, and to hear from His Word. Now, I would ask you, please, and invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Colossians in your Bible, the New Testament book of Colossians, and we're going to be reading in just a moment from chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, we would ask you to feel free to take the one in the seat beneath you or in front of you. Turn to page 833 if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, and you'll be exactly where you need to be this morning. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading beginning in verse 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord. He, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. If you would, please, let's stand together and ask God for his blessing and help as we prepare to hear from him through his word. God and Father, there is no one like you. And we do ask, Lord, this morning that this prayer would be the expression of our lives, that we would all seek to live for you this day. And so we ask that from your word you would teach us, that you would take my words, God, and work through them, that you would open our minds and help us to think and that you would take our hearts and open them up into the love of the Lord Jesus Christ so that all that we have and all that we are, you would bring under the authority of Christ, that we all would live to the praise of his glory. Father, we ask for help. We ask that you would bless your people this morning. 
that you would awaken the needy souls that are here and that you'll help me to speak, God, as in your sight. And I understand that I am nothing without you. Now, Lord, we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can be seated. Now, every so often, someone, I come across a statement that grips me and sticks to me. And because I find myself very guilty in the midst of the words that I've read, and a lady's name, Nancy Gunthry, wrote a book, and the book is called Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. I found such a quote that stuck to me, and it says this. I have often found myself in churches that made more of Mother's Day than Palm Sunday, with little focus given to entering into the passion of Jesus in an intentional and meaningful way as Easter approached. Too many years I've found that I have rushed from Palm Sunday to Easter morning without giving my mind and my heart over to a thoughtful contemplation of the cross. Oh, what we miss when we rush past the cross. Now, understanding that family gatherings and party planning is a large part and a good part of our times in Easter. There are things that have to be considered still every Easter morning so that no one will rush past the cross. It should be very clear that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday. And it should be very clear that on Easter Sunday, we celebrate it in a particular way. We celebrate, in essence, the truth of the gospel, which is this. That because Jesus Christ died for us, everyone who places their trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. That's the gospel. But that fact is becoming less and less meaningful to more and more people, decade by decade, year by year, in the place that God has put us. Easter for more and more people is just one more fun-filled distraction from a work week, one more three-day weekend, one more great travel day where scant or little attention or in some places no attention is paid to the single and ultimate power in the universe the Lord Jesus Christ. This diminishing value of Christ to more and more people, the general slacknessness or listlessness, as I would say, is right there before us if we pay close attention. We see Christ, the infinite, incomparable Christ, being compared in value and importance to everybody and everything. All these lesser things coming alongside Jesus Christ. In the religious realm, some people say that Jesus is just another avatar, that he's just like Buddha, or he's just like Muhammad, or he's just like an angel, or just like Joseph Smith. Even in a very sinister way, some by dent of their behavior the whole life give a picture of Jesus Christ being absolutely equal to them. We see more and more people revolt against Christ in the public arena, which is a democratic right that we should uphold. But it's a theological flaw that must be exposed. People tell us more and more that we live in a post-Christian era where we've moved way past the need for Christ and we've moved way past the need for his church. But this type of thing is not new. It's actually very old. For we've read this morning already, as soon as Jesus Christ comes on the scene, Many people had something to say about Jesus Christ. They 
diminished his worth by their words. So some people by swear word or slang or just a threat or a dare, as, as when they dared him to come down from the cross. In the Easter story, <clears throat> excuse me, you find Jew and Gentile, you find religious and irreligious to people together opposing Christ openly and opposing Jesus Christ vigorously. The gospel writer tells us that with one voice, the Easter crowd was away with him. And with a loud shout, they tell us, they said, crucify him. Luke tells us that the very last thing that was said to Jesus when he was on the cross was this. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. It's ironic that one of the names of Jesus Christ is Savior. In my lifetime on television, comedic parodies, college campuses and universities, people have had a very free mind. And they think on Christ and they speak on Christ any way they like. He's the bunt of their jokes. He's the source of their anger. And he's the source of all their problems. Politicians, on whatever side of the aisle they stand, they're always these days emboldened to grab Jesus Christ and put him on their side of their equation. To put Jesus as the poster boy for their own agendas. And even in my own mind, I'm always confronted with the fact that I would try to fashion a Jesus Christ that I want and not the Christ of the Holy Scriptures to make Christ fit into my mold, into my worldview, into my pace of living. Now, don't think me unkind here, but many take Christ into the athletic field and they take Him to their vocations, their families, business, and they take Him into retirement. And like a witch doctor would shake a totem stick or a magician would wave his wand they grab the ascended Jesus Christ and they shake him over their circumstances and they say, do something and do something now. As if Jesus had no mind on the matter. If just Jesus had no authority on the matter. As if he had no plan in the midst of all their lives and trouble. And so, what happens typically is when things don't go the way they hope, they put Jesus aside until... Either one, the religious mood strikes them again and they're ready to pick him up. Or two, there's just too much trouble and so they've got to pick him up again and see if they shake him, it'll work this time. Or, as we all know, when a doctor gives us a foul report and all of a sudden the brevity of life is right before our eyes, we would pick the ascended Christ up, shake him, and hope that he could do something for those circumstances. Now, loved ones, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, left us no room for that kind of thing. For if the context that we are in right now, where the glory of Jesus Christ is diminished, if the Easter triumph means less and less, where does the fault lie? He has not changed. And if the supremacy of Christ in all things is real, then how does that affect our reality. And if we have an on and off switch in our devotion to Him, how can we say that is right? The world must see Jesus Christ as He is. That's what Paul was trying to do to the Colossian church. They had a huge problem. They were fascinated by charms of those who could offer them something more than Christ, as if they were. They were unconvinced that convinced to follow Christ, to really, really follow Christ was all there is. They thought 
there's got to be something more. And the Christians there begin to add alongside Christ all kinds of other things, lesser things. And they set their mind on them with him and not him exclusively. And so Paul comes along and he pens these words to tell them, get your mind back on Jesus Christ. Get your mind on Christ and nothing else. My goal, Paul says later on in the letter, is to present this church perfect in Christ. So we need to let the scriptures teach us about Jesus this morning. We only have three points. We're going to spend most of our time on the first and far less on the other two. And the points go like this. First, we're going to ask and answer the question, who is Christ? Second, what has Christ done? And third, why does it matter? Okay, who is Christ? What has Christ done? And why does it matter? First, who is Jesus Christ? Now, whenever we approach the Bible, there's always a grave mistake that so many make in our time. What they do is when they approach the Bible, the first topic they look for is themselves. A very me-oriented faith. Do you remember the Roman myth of Narcissus? He was the guy that looked at himself in a river, saw his reflection, and he fell in love with himself. In fact, he set himself in his mind as the supreme value. And he was troubled because he figured out, as he kept looking at himself, that he could never, ever love himself to any degree of satisfaction. And so he dies. He's consumed with himself. And that's how he leaves this world fixed on himself. Now, you can't do that with the scriptures. Who is Christ? Well, right there in verse 15, you see it plainly. Christ is the invisible, excuse me, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. That statement in the Bible is the strongest statement about the divine nature of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the Bible. Jesus is not only equal to God, Jesus is God. Christ is, and Paul says this, echoni, that's the Greek word. He's not the resemblance of God in a picture. He is the exactness of God in a body. Christ not only reflects God, but he reveals God. What you see in Jesus Christ is what you get in God. So his very words are the words of God. So that's why when you read your Bibles and you see how Jesus behaves in the world, you see that he has full authority over sickness and death, full authority over nature. He can calm seas. He can walk on water. He even knows the thoughts of men. Loved ones, Jesus comes down from heaven. He does not come up from the dust of the ground. He was not made in the image of God. That's us. That's Genesis chapter 1. He is the image of God. He doesn't have a start date. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't God and did not exist. That being, brings us back to basic Christianity. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. No one has ever seen God. If anyone has ever told you that they have seen God, they're either very, very confused or they're lying. Listen to your Bible. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, 
but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And God, the one and only God, at the Father's side, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. The second part of verse 15, the firstborn over all creation, speaks to this fact. It speaks to the fact that over 500 people, witnesses, saw the risen Christ and that Jesus Christ was the first to rise from the dead with a body that was fit for eternity. That's verse 15. Now, who is Christ? Verse 16. He is the force of and the reason for all things existing. That's what it says there plainly in verse 16. Everything was created by him and for him. So that wherever you look, you see the handiwork of Christ. In any institution, any authority, even if they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ at all, we're told that everything all owes their settled state to Christ. So when you see in the world right decorum and protocol and basic human rights and the drive for human rights, the source of this is Jesus Christ. And the end of time will reflect his authority. For when Christ says, cease, everything will have to cease because everything was created by him and everything was created for him. Now, we live in a, in a time where there are large numbers of people who suffer heavily under the darkness of either depression, anxiety, or just general listlessness. I'd be very surprised if you're not here this morning. Now, what reports tell us about such thing is that this is not the exception anymore. It's actually becoming more and more the rule. Now, when you read the gospel of Christ, what you see in Jesus, and we can be helped here, is a man of action. He understands his destiny and he heads towards his destiny firmly, a strong place. He knows that he has come to die. He's facing life as it's given to him wonderfully and he's facing it honestly. Okay, so what example can he give us? He gives us this example. He knows that he has not come, and I'm quoting Jesus now, he has not come to do his will, but to do the will of him who sent him. Why? Because everything was created for him. That's the simple answer to the question that haunts humanity. Why am I here? If that answer is, the question is answered correctly, why am I here? It will always lead you directly to Jesus Christ. If it's answered incorrectly, it will always lead you to despair. Now listen to your Bible. And Jesus died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This isn't old-fashioned. This is actually up-to-date, modern, and new. Our whole existence is to be concerned for Christ. We were not created for us. We were created for him. And mankind's, mankind's have always, they've always run after many, many things. And when they run after many, many things, it displays the message of their heart. And the message of their heart is this, that I am here for me. But the Bible says, no, dear one, you are here for Christ. Now, we need a word from someone, right? 
Let's get a word from someone who's intelligent, who lives in the cities, and who pastors a church. John Piper on this subject. Listen carefully. Everything from the bottom of the ocean to the tops of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked dictator, everything that exists exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you and the person that you have the hardest time liking. In verse 16, we are told that nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake, including you and I. Who is Christ? He's God. He's the reason for all things existing and for the things existing. And in verse 17, he's the mystery of science. Isn't that what he says there? He holds all things together. Science is constantly on the go, always searching for the origins of creation. How do things get to be things? Why are things not spinning out of control? How are things maintained? How are things held together? And they're always troubled because there is no definite answer. And there's some, even scientists that have no affection for Christ, some say there's got to be something supernatural out there because we can't figure it out as of yet. The very best theory that they've come up with with is this. Zero point energy theory. Okay? Zero point energy theory. Albert Einstein, Otto Stern. They come together and they say this. We know that there's energy out there. We cannot figure out where it's coming from. There's wave after wave of energy and we don't know where it's coming from. It's there. We can't find its source could be a black hole. We're not exactly sure, but this is what we know. There is this vast source of energy, seemingly limitless, and it maintains the universe. Who is it? Answer, thank you, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is cement and the source and substance that holds everything in place. This isn't, this isn't little, some little small town God. You got that? Little kind of personal deity that we put on our cabinet tables. This is the almighty ascended Jesus Christ. And he's coming to judge the world one day. Who is Christ? Verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. In other words, the church exists for one purpose, for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church in its simplest form. This verse speaks to this true fact. Listen carefully. If you are to ignore the church, you're not ignoring a group of people. You're ignoring the risen Jesus Christ. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. And to the church, the mind of the church is always to be first. How does this appear to Christ? Not how does it appear to us and not how does it appear to others. It's always to the head of the church. How does this appear to Christ? Verse 18 settles us all in here. He is the Alpha and Omega Christ, so that in everything, Paul says, he might have supremacy. He might have proteou. That's the Greek word. It means to be first in rank and to be first in influence. You ready? First place, prominent position in creation. 
Jesus Christ. Supremacy in the rule of the world, Jesus Christ. In the sciences, Jesus Christ. In the church, Jesus Christ. In our living, in our thinking, and our energy spent, Jesus Christ. Up to our very end, Christ is to have supremacy. And past our end, into eternity, Jesus Christ will have supremacy. He is the greatest in status and greatest in authority. And that is why he will be at at the judgment as the judge. For he's the only one qualified to be there. A long time ago, Donald Coggin, former Archbishop of Canterbury, told this true story. There was a beautiful sculpture that someone made of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people would come everywhere to see it. And every time they would come, always the same thing happened. They would come and they were ready to be awed. And they would look at the statue and they just couldn't figure out the thing. And every time they were there and every time they couldn't figure it out, which happened always, people would go and find the sculptor. And they would run to him and they would say, listen, we just can't get it. We're, we're not seeing it. Will you please help us? And this is what the sculptor said. He said, there is only one angle from which this statue can be truly seen. You must kneel. And that is why I would say to you, with all the love of my heart, there's only one way we can look at the risen Christ correctly. And it's when we kneel. I want to take you to heaven, the book of Revelation. What is the constant noise and sound in heaven? What is the one thing that will never, ever cease in heaven? You ready? This is what the Bible says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor. For you created all things, and by your will they have existence. That will never, ever cease in heaven. It will be the constant background music, if you would, in heaven. Do you think that's important to God? I would say it is. That is who Christ is. Now, quickly, what has Christ done? Verse 20 through 22. There's a familiar saying that I'm sure most of you know. It was said by a guy named Lord Action, and he was actually talking to a preacher, and this is what he said. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is the case with humanity, but that is not the case with Christ. If you look at your Bible there in verse 20, you see that sin has made us an enemy of Jesus Christ. Our evil behavior, Paul says, that in our minds puts us at odds with Christ. Alienation is the key word in verse 21. Alienation means estrange, disaffection, isolation. It even means treason and dislike because loved one's sin is always open hostility with God. What is sin? I had to memorize this not so long ago. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's command by things we omit and things we commit. Things that we do that we shouldn't. And things that we don't do that we should. And what has Christ done with this sin? What has he done with this hostility? Well, he has not fired back. He has not gone to war 
with humanity. He offers peace in the most unimaginable, unexpected way. He lays down his life to satisfy the just penalty of the consequences of sin in the government of God. There is nothing like this anywhere in the world. Humanity chooses and chose to rebel against Christ. Christ responds with a peace offering, verse 20, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. I'm going to quote a hymn, and I'm just ask yourself, does this mean anything to you? And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. This death is the only thing that brought reconciliation between us and God. Reconciliation means that God is no longer opposed with us. He's not at odds with us. We are one with God because of Christ. For the converted follower of Christ, there is no more opposition with God. How? Again, peace through his blood. Now, just be careful here when we say peace. Peace is not some kind of feather bed peace that everything always will always be just peachy. That's not true. We live in a fallen world. This is the peace that Jesus means. We move from hostility to friendship with God. We move from the wrath of God to the love of God. We move from condemnation to justification. We, meet, we move from being against God and God being against us to being with God and God being for us. So as the song says, no matter whatever our lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Christ died so that sins which separate us from God, which will bring his wrath upon us, which will also bring eternal punishment, can be forgiven as you and I bow to the mercy of Christ. Christ died so that every time we sin, we would understand that our only hope of forgiveness is not sadness of heart because we did it wrong. It is the blood that Jesus shed at Calvary. He died so that we would know there is no self-salvation. For if there is self-salvation, then Christ died for nothing. He died so that no other religious thought could captivate the mind, an honest mind, like this. We must always be accepted for Jesus' sake before a holy God or we cannot be accepted at all. That's the message of the gospel. That's the reason we have peace with God. That's the reason, look at verse 22, we're holy, we've been set apart for God, we're without blemish, no fault found by God, we are free from accusation, no words of condemnation ever. The copybook of our Christian life is white as snow because of the blood of Christ. All our sins, Easter morning, right? All our sins, past, present, future, have been settled. Another hymn, dying for me, dying for me. There on the cross, he was dying for me. Now in his death, my redemption I see. All because Jesus was dying for me. Now our time is done. Who is Christ? He's God. 
What has Christ done? He has died so that we could have peace and be reconciled to God forever. Okay, why does it matter? That's our last question and then we're done. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because one day we'll be judged by this Jesus Christ. It matters because after death, there is no hope for any second chance. It matters because of this question. Are you saved? Are you, are you saved? Is Jesus God to you? Is he supreme to you? Are you continuing in the faith, as it says there? Are you established, firm, verse 23, all wrapped up in Jesus? Are you so wrapped up in Jesus that it offends you when Jesus is offended? That it offends you when you see the honor of his name diminishing in this world? Do you love Jesus Christ? Does that statement make you feel awkward? Do you love Christ? Do you hate sin? Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine going to a wedding and after the couple said, I do, they both went their separate ways and they never saw each other again. I know what I would say. I would say that's not a marriage. Please understand this. Jesus Christ died for me so I can live any way I like is not the Easter message. The first sermon ever preached after the resurrection had three points. Point number one, repent. Point number two, Jesus is Lord of all. Point number three, save yourself. Save yourself and come to Jesus. This is the mind of Christ. It's the very words of Christ from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, then you truly are my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, isn't it wonderful? And isn't Christ so good? And if you're not a Christian this morning, then I'm just going to read to you the last verse that we read And I want you to think hard. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and has been proclaimed here this Easter morning, 2010. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and the King of grace. And we pray, Father, that those within the sound of my voice who have trouble right now, not being able to reconcile in their heart and mind any certainty about where they stand with the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. And if you're that person, just a simple prayer I would lead you through. Something on the order of cleanse me from my sin, Lord. Put your power within, Lord, and take me as I am, Lord, and make me all your own. Keep me day by day, Lord, in the narrow way, Lord, and make my heart your palace and your royal throne. Now, Father, we pray that the truth that has been spoken this morning would be received by everyone. And one day, Father, which is called the last day, 
everyone here will be together in heaven forever, continuing and living for the ascended Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.